0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. My guest in this episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast is Marina Severinovsky, Head of Sustainability, North America, for Schroeder's Asset Management, a global firm with $887 billion U.S. in assets under management for institutions and individuals around the world. Schroeders believes that markets are currently experiencing more than a typical cyclical turning point, but rather a global reset where patterns of the past decade will face a period of adjustment and that a new regime in policy and market behavior is unfolding, driven by major global themes like decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographic change all of which investors need to understand if they are to find the best opportunities and safeguard their portfolios. The Schroeder's team also tells us that sustainability will be key to navigating this new era, to recognize and price trends like the acceleration of responses to climate change or worker scarcity and the human capital investments needed to increase productivity. Today's podcast represents the first of three sessions with Schroeder's. Marina will set out the framework today for the regime shift and the 3D's trends of decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographic change, and how they are tied to sustainability. Then in the coming months, members of her team will join us for in-depth webcasts to dig more deeply first into the decarbonization trend and then into deglobalization and demographic change. Hello Marina, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast for the first of three sessions with you and the Schroeder's team this year. We're very excited to have you.
1: We're very excited to be participating. Thank you, Paul, so much for having me.
0: Great. Well, Marina, we've been hearing about a shift in the fundamentals that historically guided markets' behavior. Can you tell us about the new forces and trends at play and how long we can expect them to last?
1: Absolutely. So if we look at the first page that I kind of set out in the presentation um, around what we talk about, the sort of new regime or regime shift, um, this is really an operating principle by which we are sort of thinking at Schroeder's across all of our asset classes um, you know, how we're investing and that this is something that we can expect to go on for the coming decade, right? So it's not sort of a half year year, you know, scenario, but really is representing sort of trends that can be structural um, and they can persist for some time. And so we think about kind of what did you do in the past 10 years? You probably want to think about doing the opposite in the next 10 years. The biggest issue around this is the persistence of inflation. And some of these trends that I'm going to talk about are very inflationary trends. Um, The decarbonization journey, the sort of shift to renewable energy at the front end, the sort of investment that's needed, the creation of capacity, these things can be quite inflationary um, as you sort of build out, again, a new sort of supply chain to be able to deliver energy globally. Um, And and the associated costs of, of these sort of New and and renewable sources, and then you have uh, deglobalization, and we've obviously been seeing a lot of geopolitical, um, you know, shift. There's um, kind of the 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 sort of China U.S. East East West uh, sort of divides. Um, it plays into uh, a, a need to sort of reorient supply chains. Um, these things can be very inflationary too, um, in terms of, again, where fulfillment happens and the costs of of doing that. And then there's issues around, again, kind of demographic change in the world and where the young populations are and kind of what's happening with, you know, kind of countries that have much older uh, working populations. So we're going to sort of talk about that a little bit later on in in the podcast and also, as, as, as you said, Paul, in some subsequent sessions. But you can see here, I think the kind of framing mechanism is that inflation will continue to be a challenge because all of these things are by their nature inflationary, um, the cost of labor, the cost of sort of, you know, different supply chains that may be less cost efficient, but will be required in a new paradigm. And then again, the kind of cost of, of, um, shifting the energy transition, um, central banks will have to prioritize that inflation and sort of tackling that inflation. We've already seen, you know, cost of living crises and things like that, um, over the past year. And so that, you know, becomes really important for central banks to deal with again, that sort of structural change in supply chains and in energy. And then from a labor perspective, um, the need to to deal with the scarcity of labor by investing in technological innovation, the kind of capex spend that is needed, and then overall just policy volatility. I think we are becoming quite inured, right, accustomed to the fact that there is a lot of volatility that policymakers are dealing with, um, and we just expect that to sort of continue as we see some of these these trends that, again, could be decade-long trends uh, manifest over time. So that's the idea behind regime shift. I think... Um, I'll end on this point, kind of, you know, you can ask this sort of question, but as obviously I have a bit of a vested interest. I'm the head of sustainability for North America here. Right. But as as I look at this, it would be very, very hard to imagine understanding this new sort of framework into the future without sort of what we call, you know, sustainability or ESG considerations. Um, and so that's why I wanted to sort of really marry the two and kind of make the, the argument that the kind of macro environment that we expect over time actually makes it really important. It puts a much finer point on the fact that we have to understand, um, you know, how our investee companies are operating, you know, from the perspective of these sort of ESG factors that we think about. And so that's you know I'd love to sort of obviously discuss that for the rest of our time together.
0: Sure. So in this new era, you've, you've already described uh, uh, some dramatic pretty dramatic shifts and changes from the last decade at least. What are the implications for sustainable investing going through this into this new period?
1: Yeah. So again, decarbonization, very much of an ESG wheelhouse, right? Almost exactly kind of right here on point. And so we talk about um, you know, what are the implications, right? I mean, this is, you know, very far-reaching action is needed here. The implications are really pronounced in terms of kind of global GDP. If you look here, you know, Kind of per capita versus global CO2 emissions per capita. We're talking about really a, a very strong shift from a kind of a natural trajectory, the current trajectory, um, to what is needed effectively to get kind of get to net zero by 2050, we're trying to reverse in 20 or 30 years the impacts of industrialization which have played out over several centuries. And we need to do this on a much bigger scale with industries that are now much more interconnected. We talk about kind of supply chain, you know, than they were in the past. So this is clearly going to be massively disruptive to industries and to economies. And so again, a good investor who's thinking about which companies will be able to thrive in this environment, how companies are preparing for this future, um, is going to have to really, need to understand these issues. If we look at the next page, just kind of taking this a bit more broad on kind of the net zero momentum, you know, we're seeing obviously uh, some 130 countries uh, at last sort of count have set a net zero target. The difference, you know, just sort of 2017, just really a handful of years ago, it was kind of less than 20 countries that had done that. We now have um, 90% of global GDP is covered by some sort of net zero commitment and companies are starting to come along as well. Um, again, you've seen uh, kind of a, a curve, right? A really, really quick rise uh, with that perspective, again, for target dates that are kind of in, you know, the mid-century mark. So this is really happening, I think, on the on the sort of decarbonization side and then the the social the more kind of demographic shifts um you know again if we look, take a look at one page down um these these social implications for companies are really turning into real costs and so again as investors it we're interested in the the so, sort of social trend But we're much more interested when it becomes a financial manifestation for a company. And so we look here at kind of, you know, what has happened, especially with large companies. And Schroeder is obviously a very large investor in sort of public equities and credit. And so a lot of it is looking at these large global companies. Um, You know, they they've become very important parts of the kind of markets and and the kind of global ecosystem in terms of their share of global GDP, their share of employment, and corporate profits. So they really affect um, the economy in, in, in huge ways. Um, and the pressures on these companies have mounted tremendously. We've, you know, are just living through a period of proliferation of regulation, uh, you know, obviously taxation, and then just in general, societal expectations, public mistrust, uh, public expectations of companies, Again, this becomes a question of regulatory risk and also of reputational risk, in addition to kind of operational and investment risks for companies. You know, what do I need to have the license to operate? What do I need to retain the soundness of my brand? What to, again, not just regulators and policymakers, but what to my employees, my customers, my sort of community around me, and then kind of society expect of me in this new world as a corporate actor. We saw, for example, companies kind of, you know, being being. Judged uh, in terms of the decisions they made during the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the companies who were kind of on the ground, um, you know, we we see things like that. Companies are expected to take some kind of stand. You can't just be sort of a you know a, a neutral actor and say I'm just here for the economics, right? For kind of you know my business. Um, so that social license to operate, right, that expectation of companies um, to to think about their workers, um, you know, to think about um, their impact on society and environment. It's just getting higher and higher, and and so I think as, as we see these again these broad global trends, um, as investors, in order to make the right decisions around companies, I think sustainable characteristics or factors are increasingly becoming kind of front and center, along with all the other things that we as active you know managers and 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 you know, fundamental investors are focused on. Um, this just becomes very much part of the calculus. Um, I think of how we need to understand businesses, their longevity, um, the future proofing of their business models, um, and whether, you know, we're comfortable having having our clients assets invested in these companies over the longer horizon. Um, Again, will they be able to sort of like move with these really significant changes in the world um, and, and be able to thrive, you know, in this new environment?
0: Well, it certainly has been playing out in the U.S. Uh, at, at the political level as well, as in, uh, as in financially and in every other way, for especially for large companies. So how does Schroeder's believe a sustainability lens enhances the view of portfolio risks and opportunities with this type of dynamic going on in the economy?
1: Thank you. So we we put up here kind of our, our philosophy, right, which we've had in place for a long time. But I think it's almost never more important than now to sort of think about it in this way. You know, why are we integrating ESG? Um There are investment risks, right? I've talked about this. You know, we have a kind of the strength and speed of these global shifts that I'm talking about, you know, create risk for companies that end up getting left behind. And so we have to think about, is your business model structurally, um, you know, going to, to be successful in an environment where... Again, you have a a very different demographic environment and kind of how you can, um, you know, attract and retain workers um, in an environment, again, where your supply chains are pressured or have to be shifted. And again, how, you know, the the sort of it's not just for companies in the energy space. It's sort of everybody who's a consumer of energy markets as well. You have to think about the kind of decarbonization journey um, as well. There are clearly investment opportunities, too, within all of this. And so it's not just about risk. Um, it's very much about thinking, where can we identify companies uh, where there's an opportunity for them to grow and to be part of the solution and to, frankly, be, be innovators um, and to be facilitators of change? And then the impact component, I think, is one that again, becomes really, really important today. And it's not, I don't mean this as sort of impact investing. I talk about capital I, you know, where you're as an investor setting out to have an impact. It's the kind of impact that you, you're you not even thinking about because nothing lives in a vacuum. And every investment that we take has an impact on the world. Every company has some kind of externalities to the environment, to society, to people. Um, And the more that we live in in a reality where, again, policymakers, regulators, broader society, all these stakeholders become very, very conscious of these costs, which is usually costs the companies impose on society the more companies will be held to account for those costs. Again, around those broad themes that I talked about, but also generally. So we really have to think about, again, how those impacts will be priced in the future um, and what it will do to company business models and their bottom lines, right? What does it do to their their financials, uh, their profitability, um, you know, if they're being held to bear these costs? So for decarbonization, um, you know, it's obviously the cost of carbon, Um, And then, you know, on the kind of human capital side, you know, there's obviously costs around what we pay workers, unionization, all of those sorts of things, if if the kind of power dynamics shift, you know, towards labor, it just changes the you know the dynamics it changes the cost structure for companies and again we have to to make sure we understand how companies are positioned from that perspective so we do think that thinking about all of these things improves the kind of uh outcomes for our our stakeholders and and for shareholders obviously our clients um, and then obviously a lot of this is not just assessing it, um, you know, it, it's also being involved and engaged um, as an investor in, in um, an active owner with companies, engaging with companies, making sure that they themselves are mapping out these risks, these opportunities, these externalities and thinking about how they're going to, to position their businesses and, and make changes in their businesses around these going forward. So again, it enhances, we think, our ability to really understand companies and also um you know, be really educated in our engagement with companies so that we can hopefully have a positive effect on them um, as, you know, as their shareholders.
0: You know, after a very challenging year in 2022 in financial markets, let's focus a little bit now on what the importance of sustainability for investing looking forward is.
1: Yeah, Paul, it's been a very dramatic, (laughs) it's been a very dramatic 18 months. Um, so to your point, um, I think I, I you know I put the slide together on kind of 2022 because there were definitely kind of moments, I think, around um, just sort of skepticism given everything going on in the world. Like, is sustainability still valid? Um, I think everything I've been saying suggests that it's more valid than ever, but it's also maturing. Um, our, C, uh, our head of sustainability, Andy Howard, in London recently positioned this in a, a report that's been published as sort of, you know... It, Sustainable investing has hit like a 16-year mark, roughly. Um, it was kind of in the early 2000s um, that you, you had the, the concept of sustainable investing as a style, and now it's sort of hit maturity. It's it's in its sort of you know adolescence, um, and it's sort of again kind of hitting hitting that 16-year mark. Um, and it's a it's a rocky period. Um, it's a period of sort of change, and we see this from a number of places. You you mentioned obviously politicization in the U.S. We had the sort of. Um, uh, you know, Texas, uh, for example, um, targeting uh, investors that they they feel are boycotting fossil fuels, not literally boycotting as in I'm not investing in fossil fuels, but more boycotting in the sense of I've made an, a net zero commitment and I am advocating to these companies that they also should make commitments um, and that should, they should prepare for a net zero future. So a combination of kind of climate commitment and engagement um, being sort of positioned as as boycotting. Um, as sort of, you know, asking companies to make changes um, to their business. Um, in expectation of sort of future regulation. And then we've seen in other states, um, like Florida, a sort of a different approach. It's less sort of fossil fuel focused and just more focused on ESG metrics in general and saying, we don't want you to take these sort of social and other things into account. They're woke and they're kind of, you know, liberal. Um, we really just want you to focus on financial materiality and good returns. Um, and and in, in that case, I think, you know, the response is uh, absolutely, we 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 look at these things because they're financially material and because we want good returns. And so I think there's kind of ways to to resolve you know some of that debate. But certainly the debate is there. We see it all the time in the news, and we're heading into the next election cycle uh, for the kind of you know the the White House, where we expect these issues to be front and center. Um, then we have you know as we already mentioned this at least once right the kind of Ukraine war um, and you know energy prices, and I think really crystallizing in, in everybody's minds um, the importance of sort of affordable, secure energy production, you know, for the globe and how we sort of balance that need today, um, you know, with the need to, again, kind of continue to decarbonize, which I've already described a little bit, that sort of journey. And then finally, from a regulatory standpoint, I referenced it uh, last year as the regulators sort of circling the wagons, um, you know, both in the U.S. and abroad, Um, really uh, starting to deal with the question of what it means to invest, you know, what what is sustainability? How do you define that? How do you disclose on it? Um, Making sure that there is not, you know, greenwashing in the sense of, I mean, intentional misleading um, of customers in order to just sort of sell them things. So there's just a lot I think taking place today for us you know in the asset management space who have been committed to sustainability for a long time that we have to work through but it's it's okay. I think I think the it's important for this to happen, this maturation um so that we can move forward in a way that you know can be more aligned that people understand why we do these things, that they are for investment reasons, that they can feel comfortable that we are disclosing what we do, that it's sensible, that and that customers understand what they're getting. All of those things, again, I think are really critical. And the next slide, just to sort of finish on this point, is that notwithstanding all of that that sort of happened, the reality is that the trend is the trend. The kind of fundamental importance of sustainability, and I talked about it in the context of regime shift, but even if we think about some of the things here, the interest from clients, the focus from regulators, and then as we think about business and financial drivers, people identifying—you know—we surveys, right? Kind of identifying global risks over the next ten years. You can see how significantly this has changed from sort of a two thousand eight to today, um, where a, a lot of these global risks are, in fact, um, environmental they're social, you know, certainly over the last kind of year plus, there's been geopolitical as well. But this, I think, is a, a trend that, you know, again, is sort of set to persist. So notwithstanding some of the, um, you know, some of the dramatics, right, um, over the last year in, in the press and kind of, you know, in in the kind of politics, um, I think our need to continue to position for durability and sustainability of business models in our investee companies remains, you know, completely unchanged.
0: Well, you know, I I completely agree with your perspective and with Schroeder's perspective on this. In fact, uh, it turns out that the uh, Texas is going to be the state that produces more clean energy within a few months now than any other two states in the United States put together, uh, one of those states being California. So let's, let's dig in now to the first of the 3D's trends, and that's decarbonization. In our next Schroeder's webcast, your colleagues who focus on energy investment and climate engagement will join us to expand on this theme, but as a start, how do you see the momentum and the constraints around decarbonization trends developing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So critical. And I think I think that point about Texas is really important, um, where we have to realize that, um, you know, again, we have some politicking um, out there, but then there's the reality on the ground in terms of what is happening in terms of policy and investment. Um, you know, where the incentives are, where the kind of, uh, you know, the future is going, um, where, again, people are taking these investments and then the, and the energy industry itself kind of where they're moving. And so, you know, look, I mean, the first basis, we just wanted to kind of show this because I think it's just interesting contextually in terms of that focus uh, on transition. You know, the world has been through previous energy transitions from sort of traditional biofuels um, in the past, um, you know, um, to 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 obviously um, kind of a coal environment and then from there to sort of oil and gas. And then we see again, this very rapid um, kind of accelerated future of moving into into renewables um, everywhere that that you know that kind of traditional oil and gas can be replaced over time, and so I think this is again really important to understand that that shift is happening and and it's happening everywhere as you say. I mean even in the places where you sort of might be surprised, but but there is no surprise. This is, um, you know, where again the kind of we're going in the future, and I think will be more economic as well. Um, you know, think about that from the perspective of of kind of the next page, um, the the acceleration that kind of um, from from the IRA. Um, that acceleration of clean um, energy spending um, across the country, we think about this very clear link between economic-driven policy and sustainability-related trends, and that will persist for decades. And so the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, a great example um, of uh, a springboard, right, for capital to move into industries that provide renewable capabilities um, to scale that energy transition, So kind of understanding the nuances around the viability of new technologies, right? A lot of traditional energy companies are talking about kind of carbon capture um, in their their businesses, as well as the application and kind of realistic timing of the deployment of existing capabilities, um, hydrogen, uh, for example, um, and how that sort of, you know, the benefits from new tax incentives, um, all of those things help us to have a fuller perspective, you know, for these really important considerations um, around kind of where we want to, where and when, uh, you know, we want to take positions. And I think, you know, both, Smaller and lesser known companies and also kind of larger and well-known companies, including, of course, the traditional energy majors, you know, stand to benefit from this sort of changing environment that's centered around decarbonization. And again, policymakers and regulators creating the right sort of incentive structure for them um, to drive this this, uh, you know, trend forward. And again, this feels to us like it really has uh, has taken hold.
0: So, now, how are asset managers, uh, Schroeder's obviously included, uh, responding to the challenge? In other words, how do you balance the speed of transition that you've talked about with ensuring that investments remain viable? You've got a lot of people with a lot of uh, retirement-focused assets under management uh, and institutions uh, that need cash flow, et cetera. And what does this mean for investment portfolios
1: a- absolutely and again shooters comes from this the perspective of being a global diversified asset manager and the vast majority of our clients are coming to us for that service you know we have an impact arm, we have you know, a sort of dedicated impact and sustainable strategies that have a different objective, right, where clients are trying to achieve something different. Uh, but the vast majority of clients are looking for a diversified investment to maximize their risk-adjusted returns as they move forward for long, long time horizons for their retirements, largely sort of pension money. And so we really have to think about um, how we manage the trade-off. You know, um, decarbonizing too slowly is a risk. Um, You know, uh, and then, you know, there's higher physical risks from climate change, um, higher transition costs. All you're doing is kicking the can down the road. So you have those higher costs in the future. But also aggressively decarbonizing um, is risky, too, because it reduces the investment universe in a drastic way. I mean, this kind of concept of just exclusion is not palatable. Um, We're not able to to sort of take out whole sectors and industries without really um, impacting the diversified portfolio and the returns of that portfolio. So that's neither of those things can happen. And so it has to be. really the trajectory has to be sensible. Um, if we look at the next page again, how we're dealing with this, right? There are a number of sort of approaches in effect, right? That asset managers can take around this. And we certainly have a view of kind of what, you know, what what those approach, the bright approach is. And so there's portfolio constraints, right? So I'll talk about that in a moment, um, but it's, you know, effectively um, setting some kind of finance, you know, kind of emissions constraints at a portfolio level, then you divest, right? From kind of more carbon intensive areas, et cetera. Then there's kind of portfolio reallocation, kind of moving to less carbon-intensive strategies. Um, this again can be problematic because a lot of it is kind of so sort of geographical movement. For example, you know from emerging markets to to developed markets, you might end up you you can at the moment kind of glean some benefit, right? If there's sort of a more uh, carbon-intensive um, companies in emerging markets. And in the, you know, kind of developed markets, you can move towards low carbon sectors, you know, technology, what have you. But again, it creates a problem in terms of your global geographic diversification. And then there's target-based approaches where, um, you know, we'll talk about this too, kind of engaging with issuers, um, you know, to set targets, uh, you know, monitor their plans, effectively say, you know, we're going to engage, we're going to be active owners. The bulk of the solution here comes from, existing, you know, companies in our universe, um, understanding the way that we do, the way that everybody does, that change is coming, and how they're going to move forward. I mean, the couple of statistics that I would give you in terms of what limits the, the flexibility of the earlier options You know, one of them is the kind of exclusion of sectors. I mean, you have 80% of financed emissions are coming from 20% of our AUM and concentrated in five sectors, utilities, oil and gas, resources, you know, materials. Um, You know, you can't very well carve those out, again, of a diversified portfolio, give up those opportunities. Um, And again, really, I mean, you know, if you're trying to deliver market beta. The other problem is, you know, with respect to kind of that reallocation component is that if you start to exclude uh, laggards in each sector, or if you start to try to move kind of from a geographic perspective, you get quite a lot of bang for your buck initially. So in other words, if you think about um, kind of measuring like... um, The share of your equity market that you remove from your investment universe and how that affects the amount of of carbon intensity, right, that you remove. You know, you can start out like, hey, let me get rid of some emerging markets assets. Let me get rid of, you know, some oil and gas assets. So it can be quick bang for buck. But it gets harder and harder as you go. You have to start to remove more and more of the investment universe over time because you're ending up, obviously, with a cleaner universe. And so the, the kind of impact as you go becomes much more challenging. So this, we think, is quite a dangerous road to go down. Um, and so what we look at doing, and it's sort of on, on the next page, we, we've we drawn kind of a normal curve, basically. Um, people ask about carbon offsets, so I'll just say a word about that. But what, what we say is that we have to use a combination of approaches. And the tools that you have available to you as an asset owner and a manager on behalf of the asset owner to decarbonize is, of course, some measure of divestment and reallocation. Um, And there are going to be some, again, some assets that are just so risky over time, stranded asset risk, again, the inability to evolve their business, um, that, you know, there's a kind of a, there's some, again, tail end. Um, They'll have to be kind of removed from the portfolio, not just because you're trying to decarbonize the portfolio, but because, you know, from the perspective of sort of affecting real world carbon emissions, you know, these are businesses that, um, again, are, are not sustainable business models going forward or durable business models going forward. Um, And then on the more positive side, there's sort of, we talk a lot now about kind of positive climate solutions. Um, I did a panel yesterday on nature and biodiversity and kind of investing in those uh, things, forestry, for example. So, you know, things like getting rid of deforestation in portfolios, You know, healthy forests, you know, forests are, you know, enormous sort of carbon sinks and carbon capture. And so investing in things that can be, again, kind of natural solutions, which are usually more cost effective than technological solutions um, around decarbonization is going to be really important, too. The scale, however, at the moment for these things is very low still, and the size of the challenge is really enormous. And so although we are working very diligently, I think as an industry, um, to try to scale those things up and to build that capacity for kind of climate positive solutions, and it's definitely part of the, the map of, of this, this the kind of what we're trying to achieve, today, the biggest impact that we can have is around engagement. Um, And so that's the, the big part of the normal curve there, you can see colored in, right, is, you know, we, we have Schroeder's, you know, you know it has nine hundred billion dollars invested across. You know, largely it's uh, you know a lot of it is is uh, public markets. Um, A lot of our peer, you know, institutions have have lots of money in the markets. And so our ability to, you know, engage with, again, the companies that we're invested with um, to encourage them, to facilitate, to support them as they are on that same decarbonization journey um, is really the kind of critically important piece that we can have. Um, Carbon offsets, I would say, um, is something that we also, you know, have explored again in that kind of, you know, positive climate solutions bucket, you know, thinking about the kind of projects that one can invest in. It is not meant to. Be the core solution. Um, it's meant to be kind of an extra layer for things that just cannot be, um, you know, that, that you, if from from. Um a decarbonization standpoint or kind of mitigation standpoint cannot really be addressed. There's always going to be some needs or some some uh, needs, let's say, for traditional oil and gas that just are not replaceable. Um, and so from that perspective, if you are investing appropriately to offset that carbon, um, you know, through, again, kind of nature based projects, uh, that makes a lot of sense as well. But again, it's sort of a, like an additional piece. The biggest part, I think, the role that we can play as asset managers is that that kind of active ownership, that engagement component, um, you know, to to bring that to bear with the kind of broad, diversified, global investments that we
0: take. Yes I think that the active engagement uh, and focus on nature-based solutions are really two areas where I've been having more and more conversation both with asset managers and investors and financial advisors about the need to focus and energy and time and effort in those ways because they are part of the solutions at least the decarbonization solutions for the next 20 to 30 or 40 years so it's it's a matter of engagement and working with companies uh and um you know some of the 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 political approaches that are being taken uh are Counter to that, but there seem to be at least in the u s being uh, opposed to, to a certain degree through uh, the judiciary now and legislation in some states and so I think you're right we're going to see lots of of um, transition. In these ways, that will be supportive over the long run, but it's going to be a volatile and very intense and interesting period for the next 10 years or so. Now, this brings us to the next consideration, which is the just transition. So, finally, Marina, how are Schroeder's and other asset management firms considering the just transition and human rights issues as part of this entire process?
1: Absolutely. And so it's really what you just talked about, Paul, is that these things are challenging. Um, you know, that there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of debate around them and controversy because they're challenging. The transition affects a lot of people. Um, and we have to be sensitive and I think empathetic to the fact that change is difficult. Um, it's not just obviously difficult for the companies and their business models. It's difficult for customers. You know, um, it's difficult for employees um, as, as you know, industries evolve. Um, and so when we think about kind of, again, just transition, it's that that element of, you know, trying to ensure that as we work towards that sort of decarbonized future, we're not exacerbating inequalities, you know, we're not creating kind of additional problems, and so you know, from that perspective, I think at Schroeder's, you know, first of all, we've been very kind of focused on this for some time—the kind of investing for just transition. We we've always thought about stakeholders in general. Um, when we do an analysis of a company, we think about all the kind of stakeholders that are affected, and we always have. Um, so you know, you see the kind of stakeholder map there. It's employees, suppliers, it's the community, right? It's your your customers. Um, all of those folks matter, and so when we talk to a company when we engage with a company um part of our engagement blueprint um, around climate transition is to talk to companies and to understand how they're considering and mitigating the impact of that transition on their stakeholders and on wider society you know what is the plan for your employee base um, you know i think i think in some cases you know companies especially in the oil and gas you know sector will say that with some of the kind of embedded skills of their of their um, people you know can can be pivoted right to sort of um, some of the new businesses that they're undertaking so you know what we want to have we want to see that companies are thinking about this And then, you know, kind of from the perspective of funding a just transition, you know, we want to think about creating products that help, you know, kind of move capital towards areas that need support. So I think it's just remembering that human beings, frankly, are always at the center of these things. You know, we want... Um, you know, a, a climate action. We want a, a more livable and habitable world in the future. Like we want that for ourselves and our kids and their kids, right? And so it's always about people. And so we think about that for the future. But today, there's obviously people who are impacted. Um, you know, are suffering from the physical effects of climate change. People who are suffer from an economic perspective um, as these industries evolve. And so just making sure, again, from the perspective of our investments, the way we engage with companies, um, that there is a sensitivity to this and um, that we don't consider this in a vacuum. And I will say, just kind of as an editorial comment, that I think part of the reason that we have some of the fear mongering that we have in politics today around these issues, around climate, you know, some of the reason that you have some of the controversy is that maybe we haven't done as good a job as we sort of did in the, you know, at more recently, maybe in the past, we, we should have done a better job of articulating the same thing. Just something as simple as we understand that change is scary <laughs> um, and it's challenging and that people have to think about their livelihoods and their kind of economic needs for their families, just as they think about the kind of longer-term needs, right? You know, kind of, again, to have a habitable environment. So I think just the articulation of that and saying that we, you know, again, understand that these things have to be mapped, mapped together. Um, I think goes a long way just to sort of start with. And so it's good. I would say that at the last sort of, you know, couple of, you know, the COP conferences, COP, you know, um, 27, COP 15, the kind of human question, I think, has become really front and center as we talk about both. And you mentioned sort of, again, you know, nature and biodiversity um, and natural capital investing. As we think about those things, we think about land rights and sort of indigenous rights. We think, again, about kind of people in the, the global south um, and how their economies are impacted as, as, you know, again, um, you know, decarbonization takes place um, and how we, how we adjust, you know, for the needs of those individuals. So, it, critically important, really huge topic, just has to be really linked, I think, fully into how we think about decarbonizing the world. Also good a good intro to our next couple of topics.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right on schedule. Uh, as we're moving into the final section of our program today, the Schroeder's team believes that following a trend of increasing connectivity and interdependence of world economies in recent decades, we're now seeing a trend towards deglobalization as we've been discussing, including protectionism and reshoring of supply chains. Simultaneously, economies are facing worker scarcity, more power accruing to labor, and companies investing in technology to increase productivity. So these are other circumstances and, uh, and transitions that are underway as well. How are Schroeder's adapting to these issues?
1: Yeah, absolutely, right. Right. Um- more more complex points um, so if we take a look at the um, the slide here on kind of aging demographics and kind of pressures on wages I mean you know I think People are quite quite familiar with this concept, right? Um, the age dependency ratio, the percent of the working age population. Um, you know, especially in in the developed economies, obviously places the kind of emerging markets have much less of a problem with this. But especially in the developed economies, you know, we're seeing that kind of a rapidly aging population, and the need to sort of you know for kind of how how many working age workers do we have to support the rest of that population? And then, you know, we have the um, the kind of US, uh, the, the labor participation rate, we sort of look at that as well, and the kind of the shifts there. Um, we obviously saw the kind of 2020 collapse, and then how has that really been um, been recovering? And what you see is among kind of younger people, you've had fairly fulsome recovery, but that older people haven't sort of come back to work. And it does affect, I mean, ultimately, especially again, in older economies, developed economies like the US, that sort of availability of labor, Um, Certainly is going to to affect a lot of things. It's going to affect wages and it's going to affect, again, that sort of power that accrues to um, employers versus the power that a- accrues to, to labor. Um, and we see this, I think, a lot now in terms of collective action and kind of, you know, uh, a workers asking for more because, you know, because frankly, they can. Um, there are scarcer resource. Um, if we look on the next page, um, just from the perspective of kind of, you know, globalization, we talked a little bit about inflation earlier on, that a lot of these trends are inflationary. And so, you know, we do see that kind of, co- you know, Core, right, kind of goods, you know, price inflation is is high. Um, And again, you know, globalization clearly has contributed to that secular price decline in kind of core goods prices over decades. that was the sort of operating, uh, you know, sort of principle or trend, Um, you know, for many years as the world became smaller, in effect, right, and kind of more globalized. And and again, um, you know, that that kind of connectivity of goods production and supply chain. Again, what we're seeing today is the, you know, there's a bit of a reversal in some of those trends and kind of re- reshoring and friend, right, uh, friend-shoring and, and near-shoring and all those sort of trends around thinking about where you produce goods and, um, you know, wanting to make sure that as we, again, are living in a much more, uh, you know, challenging kind of from a geopolitical perspective world, um, that you have kind of that security of supply chain um, that has a, a you know, a trade-off, obviously, with, with you know, cost. So that's another area that we have to really keep an eye on. And if we look at the final um, slide, you know, kind of going back to that kind of wage um, component, um, it obviously affects companies. That's at the end of the day, right? We really have to think about um, how those higher costs um, of production, Um, And supply chain and those higher costs of wage growth um, are going to affect uh, corporate profits. So there's a number of things that companies have to do to kind of raise productivity to maintain margins. And part of that will be, and we talked about CapEx investment, part of that will be investing in technology. Um, So there's many different kind of exciting things there. But part of that is investing in people. Um, and that is, I think, where we have really focused our, our energy from the kind of sustainability standpoint at Schroeder's is how do we think about the treatment of workers, the kind of productivity um, and stability of your workforce um, that, you know, is, is an S social sort of issue, a human capital issue that companies can indeed, we think, affect with good policy. And so we think about that from a, an ESG perspective.
0: So, Marina, later this year, your colleagues who focus their research on human rights and human capital will be joining us for a webcast to delve more deeply into these themes. I understand that your team will soon be publishing a key piece of research on measuring the value of human capital management. To give us a preview of this work, can you tell us how does human capital management create risk as well as opportunity for investors?
1: yeah, opportunity being the important part to get to. yeah. I mean, so this, I mean, again, is a really direct relationship to what I just talked about around deglobalization, especially around demographics. You know, if the the kind of puzzle right, becomes there are fewer workers, um, and so it's really critical that you retain them and that you make sure they're really productive you know, like, what do we need to do? And of course, not every company is going to do this right. And so there will be winners and losers. And so first we think about why this matters um, from a cyclical perspective and a stru- kind of a structural perspective. Um, you know, this has tremendous importance. You know, we see, um, you know, rising concern around this on company calls when people are talking, you know, shareholders are talking to companies, you know, quit rates are still high. Um, attrition risk, you know, is elevated. Um, As we said, you know, there's this from a a marginal perspective, you know, workers, um, you know, are not very unionized. And increasingly, right, that kind of because union membership has been low, the wage premium has been down. But, you know, the reality is that kind of there's, there's a focus now on more collective action. So I think companies should expect, again, that shift towards the, um, kind of the, you know, power accruing uh, more to the, their, their employees. So again, how do you sort of deal with that? You know, we think about this from the kind of human capital perspective of, you know, companies will say people are our greatest asset. And then they'll proceed to treat those people like they're just costs. And so they don't don't really put their money where their mouth is in terms of how they treat people. And in fact, you know, companies rely on different capitals to function. And so, of course, there's financial capital, physical capital. But human capital is, you know, critically important. People are the catalyst that uh, activates otherwise inert forms of tangible capital. Um, people are also an appreciating asset as they work with you longer and they learn more, they're they're more productive. they're they're a better asset. And they create economic spillovers um, through networking and their experience, their knowledge sharing uh, that can either magnify, um, or detract from the returns that you get from those, those other capitals. And so they're a key stakeholder for most industries and it's widely talked about, but then as I said, people are not treated, you know, accounting sort of talks about just, just costs, you know, kind of wages that you pay. And so what we wanted to do was really think about kind of materiality and, and, and measurement and kind of management and application of kind of good human capital. And so, uh, you know, what we can see, um, you know, from the uh, sorry on the screen there, right? Um, is you know this kind of mapping, and again, this is just a teaser. There's there's just quite quite a lot to this, but it's that kind of companies being again built on all these different human capital systems, um, and um, how you think about um, again creating that most effective or kind of rich environment um, to reduce turnover. Um, and to also make your people most productive. And so you look at that kind of outcomes that we're looking for, um, for people, um, that kind of quality of their jobs, their health and safety, those human systems, the things that you, the levers you have to pull around um, innovation, around talent um, development for people, around their incentives and their management of their performance, culture, massively important, and inclusion and that kind of operating model and your kind of workforce strategy, all of those things. And so this is what the work that we have done. I mean, it's actually quite calculable. So although I, you know, excited that the, the, the research is to come and we're going to have another um, a, a podcast with you where we're actually going to re- kind of um, talk through the research, um, you know, with, with the folks who have, have developed it. But it's really measuring value creation. It's decomposing um, the return on investment in people. Um, In real terms, um, thinking about, again, that kind of human capital ROI, um, and then, um, you know, what companies really can do, the kind of levers that companies have to improving those human capital returns. Um, you know, giving practical sort of advice to companies on these are areas where you would want to focus your investments, um, so that again you're reducing turnover, increasing productivity, and frankly, winning. And this, is what I've laid out, is in the demographic shift, this kind of battle for for you know for human talent. Um, So very exciting. That's the risk part. Um, The last slide I was going to show is, you know, we already are, even though the research is quite new and we're looking to to, um, embed a lot more of that research into our investing, we're already doing it. And I think that um, it is it's pretty nascent still. But the identification of sort of labor factors as things that at the very least can mitigate risk but possibly also can be alpha enhancing, um, is something that is definitely kind of on the horizon, again, especially in the context of this this, um, demographic shift theme, where you can look at certain key labor themes. Again, you can see them here, you know, kind of uh, different things that reflect whether a company is a leader in terms of how it manages its human capital or whether it's a laggard. Um, You can start to really... Um, I think, you know, scale that, you can start to, um, you know, give some scoring around it. And it can be one of these factors that you consider alongside other factors in a, you know, kind of a, you know, when you assess a company um, to help you identify the ones that really are kind of, you know, best practices, they're avoiding controversies. Um, and they're again retaining their workers in a happier kind of culture, more productive. And that combined with the other sort of CapEx um, investments they're making in technology and innovation together, again, will give you a, a better chance of these companies outperforming their peers. And again, really contributing to alpha generation, which of course is right, like what we're what we're really trying to achieve. So I think the the um the opportunity that is really there as well um, to understand those risks and actually to benefit from how you understand them to be able to identify companies that are doing this right to engage with companies to encourage them to do this right uh, because this will be a make or break space I think over the next decade for companies, especially in labor intensive businesses.
0: Well, you've given us an awful lot to think about and I want to thank you again very much today for joining us as our guest Marina Severinovsky, Head of Sustainability North America for Schroeder's Asset Management and this has been a fascinating start to the conversation that we're going to continue for the remainder of this year and we look forward to exploring the regime shift and sustainability trends further with Schroeder's as 2023 continues. Thank
1: you again, And to our again, followers,
0: Paul. thank you very much again, Marina, mm-hmm. for joining us today. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.